commandment in the law. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, so he's going to warn the skeptic. That's the first thing I want you to see. Just in 34 to 36, you kind of see him dealing with the Pharisees. Now, Remember from last week, the Sadducees used that ridiculous question to try to trap him, to try to make Jesus and his belief in the resurrection foolish. And it's said here in our text that Jesus silenced him. That word means he muzzled them. I mean, he gagged them. It's the same word that Jesus used when he rebuked the demon and the demon couldn't speak, or when he stopped the wind and it just stopped blowing. I mean, you kind of see this. They would have had plenty to say, but there is no way to respond to the stunning and the brilliance of Jesus' answer. So the Pharisees, it says, gather together. They're gonna, I'm sure that they rejoiced over Jesus kind of devastating their religious rivals. But they think, okay, we're going to take another swing at them. We're going to gather together. Now, Matthew's intent here is for you to see these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they have massively ill intent. And let me show you two reasons why I think that. Number one, you see, it says they gathered together. You kind of see him huddling up. Now, Matthew assumes you read the Old Testament. Matthew assumes that this gathering together would jog your memory into thinking about Psalm 2, 2, when it says that the, that the kings and the nations, the kings of the earth, set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. So you see a picture where the kings of the earth are gathering together against God's Messiah. Matthew's saying these religious leaders, they're just like the rulers of the world. They're gathering against God's own Messiah. But, but more than that, it, it says they, they put a lawyer to test him, to test him. Now, this idea, Jesus has been tested before. We've been seeing this. But they're sending him to test him. Now, again, we, we think this is with ill intent, to try to trap him, to try to trick him. And so they bring this idea of the law. You know, what is the greatest law or the greatest commandment? Now, you may not know this, but the Pharisees were students of the law. They loved the commandments. They studied them. There's, they counted 613 commandments in the Old Testament, 365 prohibitions, one for every day of the year, and 248 positive commands, one for every part of the body. And they would just get into hair-splitting discussion over these commandments, which one's more weighty than the other. Is it really right to honor the Sabbath? Or is it more important to make sure and not commit adultery? So they weren't, they weren't they, I would just say they weren't affectionate towards God as much as they were kind of microscopically looking at his law. And so these Pharisees are coming to Jesus, not seeking wisdom, but they're just seeking to trap him, hoping that if he picks this law, it might alienate him from some people that don't hold to his opinion. They're trying to really break the monopoly that Jesus has on popularity at this point. Now, so, so they're not coming with this intent of tell us what you understand, but they're coming to undermine. They're skeptical of him. Okay, now let me stop here for a minute. Because skepticism by its nature seems like a bad word. I think there is a healthy skepticism that we can have. 
I, I think that there can be investigation. There can be questioning of the faith. There can be this idea that I'm doubting or I'm struggling with some of these things. I think that's a legitimate thing within a growing Christian life. I think, in fact, you see it in the lawyer. Now, we don't see it. Matthew kind of gives a, a higher view of this passage than Mark and Luke do. The lawyer himself, in the other two Gospels, seems to be truly seeking. He's not sure. He's doubting. He doesn't know. He's asking questions. And the reason I say this, and so you can go look at those passages, is that Jesus says to the lawyer at the end, he says, truly, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He's looking. He doesn't understand it all. He is questioning. He's trying to make sense of it. Now, I hope you see that there's a place in the Christian faith to ask questions, to express doubt without everybody turning on you. I hope you see that. I hope we're a church that does that. I hope that you feel that even though we may feel strong about points of theology, it doesn't mean that we can't ask questions without feeling as if we just left the circle of true faithful that there is a place for these things. I, I hope you feel that. But there is a bad skepticism, I think, that you do see here, and that is in the Pharisees. These Pharisees, they were not looking to humble themselves to Jesus and find truth. They wanted to not find wisdom from him. They wanted to advance their own wisdom to him. They wanted to undermine his position. They were so confident in their theology, they were so confident in their lifestyles, that he had nothing to offer them. I mean, how else do you explain these Pharisees? They've seen his power. They've seen the brilliance of his answers. They can't, they can't respond back to him. They've seen his kindness. They've seen conversions happen under his ministry. So how can they be so blind to his glory? How can they be so rejecting of his person? If it isn't just hardened pride and arrogance and this entrenched understanding of, I have it all right. There is a warning for us for Christians, there is a warning that we don't want to be a bad skeptic. We, we don't want to be so locked in our understanding of things that we cannot be moved, that we cannot be challenged. We don't want to be so entrenched in everything that we think that we understand of the faith, that there's no room for growth, that you have it all right now. There was a number of years back, a woman asked me, she came up and said, well, can you explain to me what you think about the millennium or the end times. And so as I was beginning to answer her question, she interrupted me and she just said, nope, you can't change me. You can't change me. I'm, I'm fixed and firm on what I believe. And so I said, well, then why'd you ask me? I mean, if I can only confirm what you already believe, then have you not grown up to this point? Has your theology not changed and developed and progressed and matured? And, and what's the ministry of the pulpit for? If it's not to bring truth to bear, not just to confirm, but perhaps to challenge, to enlighten. We, we don't want to be so entrenched that our minds aren't open. Now, I believe you understand the nuance that I'm trying to meet here. I, I'm not saying that we're wide open to any person declaring any statement that they perceive as true, but there's a sort of humility and openness that we need to have, that we need to be, it's a posture of the heart to be able to be learning and challenging and growing. And I would just encourage the Christian for that. 
I would also encourage the Christian not just to be a bad skeptic, but also avoid being behaving badly to skeptics. In other words, if a person comes and asks questions, then I hope that we could express the truth of the gospel with kindness and generosity. Paul says that we ought to preach, or Paul actually prays, that he might speak clearly as he ought, that we would speak with, with words seasoned, as it were, with salt, that we would make the most of every opportunity, that we wouldn't be quarrelsome as a servant of God, but that we'd be gracious and patient. Why? Well, because as Christians, we understand that the burden of a skeptic's conversion doesn't rest on us. I mean, we can't convict anybody of sin. We can proclaim the gospel with kindness and grace. But God says through the Apostle Paul, you can water, you can plant, but God gives the increase. In other words, we are agents of, we are instruments of grace. We're not causal. We don't cause conversions, but we are instruments through which God works to bring about the conviction of sins as the Spirit applies the truth. So, so just this first part, you see in 34 and 35, you kind of see the Pharisees, it's a warning against skepticism, a bad skepticism. We do want to promote a healthy investigation of truth. And I do pray that for the non-Christians here, if you are interested, you have questions, you don't understand it all, you may not initially believe it all. I believe a lot of things now that I didn't 20 years ago. And things have become much more clear for me. Some things have become more gray, actually. So, so there's room for that here. And I, I would invite you even to come forward with questions. Okay, the second thing I think Jesus is teaching us here is not just warning against the skeptic, but he's also giving words. The Pharisees weren't interested to hear what Jesus said, but, but others were. And he offers words of wisdom here. Wisdom for the seeker. If you really want to know that question, what do I? What does God require of me? I mean, what is the chief obligation of men and women? Well, he offers words. He really gives his answer in two parts. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Let me just take the first part, to love God fully. Now, this is a quote from the Shema. It's a Jewish prayer out of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, where Moses records, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. So they would say this prayer twice a day, reminding themselves to love the Lord our God because he's unique, he's one, he's the only one. In other words, Jesus is saying that the chief obligation of man is, is naturally to love the one who has made us. He's our creator, he's, a, he's our sustainer, he's our provider, he's our judge. I mean, he governs the universe. He's created all things. He's made the heavens and the earth. He sits in heavens and does as he pleases. He gives us life and breath and everything. Who here appointed the day in which they'd be born? Who appoints the days that you live? Who has determined all the opportunities that have come before you? Who here can determine the futures that you're going to face? I mean, none of us can. We exist for his purpose and for his pleasure. I mean, none of us can can change permanently the color of our hair. Nobody can change the stature of their body. I mean, God is creator of all things. And just that fact alone establishes the truth that we ought to love him 
He's given us life and breath right now. And Jesus even says more. He gives the depth of this love, that you are to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. I wouldn't try to divvy up what parts of the human life is under each of them. I think he's just using overlapping terms to show the comprehensive nature of our love for him. In other words, it isn't sufficient to say, I believe in God. It isn't sufficient to say, yeah, I believe he runs the universe. It isn't sufficient to say, yeah, I believe he exists. I mean, mean, there, there is the call for affections. We love him. You know, is it not... Is it not kind of instructive, and I, I run the risk of maybe oversimplifying this, but in terms of even like we had a, we had a dog, Lucy, and uh, Lucy loved us. I mean, to her, we were the creator. We were her sustainer. We fed her. We took care of her. And, and, and it, was, it was so obvious. It's not like a cat. You know, a cat, a cat makes you think... I'm beating up on cats again, aren't I? They make you feel like, you know, okay, I'll go ahead and eat the food that you've placed in front of me. Like they're doing you a favor to, to eat the food you've bought and poured out. But a dog's different. I mean, a dog just, he scratches at the door to see you. He, he looks sad when you leave. He is anxious when you come home. He wants to sit by you all the time. He, he is affectionate towards us. He, he, Lucy seemed to love us. Definitely loved Carol. But I think she loved me even as well. We agreed on the cats, I know that. But, but, but there's something natural about love being toward one that is furnishing all of life for you. And I think that's what he's saying. Is the, is the command among all people, Christian, non-Christian, there's a command, you ought to love the Lord. You ought to love him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Now the wisdom here for us I, I would point out, for those of you who think that I am fulfilling my obligation before God by taking care of my family and, and by providing for my children, and I'm faithful at church, and I engage with the poor, and, and I live a moral lifestyle, and I've been faithful to what I've promised. And while those things may be good, do you see how they're insufficient? And in other words... There's affection that is part of the relationship we have with God. There's love. In other words, you can hear the gospel of grace and not understand it. You can be raised by godly parents and and not be godly. You can hear the gospel preached and, and mercy extended, and you can still be resting on what you've done. You can still turn to the side and say, yeah, but, but my confidence is, is in how I've been changed. In other words, loveless obedience is no more acceptable to God than if you had some disgruntled employee that's doing his work only to avoid getting fired would be acceptable to you. You Love matters. So, I mean, we've confused salvation, I think, in the church. We've, We've made salvation about knowledge. If you have good, strong theology, you're in good shape. Or if you have a good, strong, moral fabric of your life, and you, you live as close to it as you can, you're all right. And we say little about loving God, having a deep, passionate, abiding love for God. There's a warning. Now, I will say this to the person who is not a Christian. You cannot love God apart from being born again. You know, J.C. Ryle, the great 
Anglican pastor of the 19th century, said that it's not natural because of our self-centeredness, because of our self-idolatry, because of our love for ourselves is so acute, we cannot break free and love God for his beauty and glory. We have to be born again. We have to be given new life. We have to understand that, that Christ has been given to us and that through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are regenerated. That heart of just self-centeredness is taken out and replaced by a heart of flesh that begins to pulsate toward God. That we have to come into contact with what forgiveness means. And then our distraction of God, or perhaps our dread of God, becomes devotion. Because now we see God as a father. We're adopted. We're forgiven. And we love him. So you have to be born again. You have to seek to repent of your sins and to place your faith in the one who has come to save. That moves us to be able to love God. But for the, but for the Christian here, I hope you see that Jesus is going to an inner law. He's going to an inner law. He's not saying the obligation. He's not saying, he's not saying the obligation doesn't matter. He's just saying there has to be fueled by love. The, 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 the reality of true salvation is evidenced in your love for God. It, it's evidenced. It, it blooms in your love. The, the delight you have for God, the trust you have in him, the joy-filled obedience, the the pleasure in thinking about God. If those things aren't part and parcel of your faith, then, then we want to check the reality of the faith. Because if you truly understand God, believe what he's done for you, it would naturally bring forth a deep love for God. It's kind of like marriage in a way. You know, how would you view a good marriage? Is it just sharing the same name? Is it just sharing the same bed? Is it sharing the same children? Is it just sharing the same house? Is that what makes a marriage good and right and beautiful? Or is it delight in each other? A a joy-filled sacrificing for one another. A happiness in being with the other. A a devotion to the other. Isn't that a good marriage? I mean, that's what I would think is a truly godly, good, just wonderful marriage, as opposed to just meeting the requirements of, of faithfulness and commonality in things jointly owned. What what would be the evidence in your life that you love God? If you were to look at your life, what evidence is there? Is there a delight for God? Is there a passion to grow, to know him and to love him? Is there a pleasantness as you think about him? What would be the evidence has your love for God over the years displaced other loves? Has, it become, has he become more important than sports or leisure or money or comfort or prosperity or popularity? Has the love for God grown such that it's forced these other loves into second, third, fourth, fifth place? Trust it has. It should. That's the nature of our love for God. Have you loved God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength? I think a lot of us struggle here. I mean, I I think it's the words of John to the church of Ephesus. He says, you've forgotten your first love. I think many of us probably right now, you may be struggling. I don't love God that way. And what does that mean? I don't have a zeal for God. I I don't know that I can answer your questions. What are all the evidences of, of my love for God? 
Maybe as Christians, we need to pray out of Psalm 85, 5. Revive my heart again, O God of my salvation. Do you notice what he says? Revive my heart again? In other words, it had been revived, but it kind of got cold and dormant. And God, revive it again. Would you give me life again? Jonathan Edwards was a, a great theologian of the 18th century up in New England. And he wrote these uh, words in his book, Religious Affections. Bit of an extended quote, so if you would just uh, be patient with me. He says this, How insensible and unmoved are most men and women about the great things of another world. How dull are their affections. How heavy and hard their hearts in these matters. Here their love is cold, their desires languid, their zeal low, and their gratitude small. How can they sit? And hear of the infinite height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, of his giving his infinitely dear son to be offered up, a sacrifice for the sins of men and of the unparalleled love of the innocent and holy, the tender lamb of God manifested in his dying agonies, his bloody sweat, his loud and bitter cries and bleeding heart and all this for enemies to redeem them from deserved eternal burnings and to bring an unspeakable and everlasting joy and glory and yet be cold and heavy and sensible and regardless? Where are the exercises of our affections proper, if not here? He says, can anything be set in our view greater and more important? Anything more wonderful and surprising? Is there anything more nearly concerning our interest? I mean, This is where we want to contemplate Christ and his cross. People, you have to do this. We have to just say, I'm going to take time and I'm going to think about my own broken nature. I'm going to think about the glory of Christ, the sacrifice he has rendered for me by his own death and by his resurrection. I've been justified. We have to contemplate these things. Not just on Sunday morning. You know, Blaise Pascal wrote many different principles of life and here's what he wrote, it's 146. He says, I've often, and he's a French philosopher, he said, I've often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. In other words, we don't take 10 minutes and just think about God. We don't sit quietly and meditate and fuel and consider. This is what we mean by preaching the gospel to ourselves. That we just think quietly. This is what he's done for me. And your hearts begin to feel that, that warmth of affection. And you begin to think about the work he's done. And the deliverance he's rendered. And the promises he's offered. And the future that he's secured. And your heart begins to just well up with, why? Why would he do it for me? And boy, out of that flows obedience and satisfaction and delight in the midst of perhaps chaos in your life. So, so Jesus is saying, love the Lord your God with your heart, your, mo- your mind, and your strength. Love him. But he says more, doesn't he? He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, folks, this ought to stun us. This ought to shock us. It would have shocked them. He's giving more than they asked. He's simply putting on par with love the Lord your God, which is really the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with everything you have, everything you are. And now he saddles up with it on equal terms. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he's saying you can't love God unless you love your neighbor. 
can't love your neighbor unless you love God. They go hand in hand like two sides of a penny. They're together always. You know a neighbor is not those closest to you. right? You know in the good parable of the Good Samaritan, it's much broader and bigger than that. It's really anybody that God has placed in your path of life in which you can serve or you can help. So it's not, it's not the guy on, you know, at the end of the world. It's those people who are in the immediate, you know, as you think of concentric circles in your life, in your community, in your church, where you work kind of thing. It's those people. And, and notice what he says. He says you're to love them as yourself. Now, do you see what Jesus is doing here? Because it should catch you. He is accepting that self-love is just part and parcel of life. He takes for granted that self-love is legitimate. Self-love, what I'm talking about here, you didn't, nobody taught you this, by the way. Hey, you knew this from infancy. This desire to have your needs met, you know, to seek happiness, to seek food, to seek clothing, to seek friends. We all have these needs, and we seek them out. This self-love is, is, is fundamentally part of us, and it's not necessarily sin. If I am really hungry and I seek to be fed to satisfy me, that's not a sin. He's not saying that. He's saying love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself becomes the measurement by which we're to love others. So to the degree that we love ourselves is that which we're to love others. So if I love myself in terms of making sure I go to bed and I, and I have a full meal before going to bed, I should seek that for others. If I seek peace in my life, I ought to be an agent of seeking peace in the life of my neighbor. If I'm seeking comfort or if I'm seeking some warmth, then I ought to seek that in the lives of another. If I'm seeking friends to have my life be more full, then I should be including others and helping them to seek friends in their life. In other words, to the degree that you're self-seeking, be self-giving. To the degree that you're seeking these things for yourself, which all may be fine, would you also play a role that others might have what you want for yourself? That's easy to understand, isn't it? And so I think appropriate right now are the words of Mark Twain, which I always turn to when I read these passages. And he says, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. They, this is hard. I mean, this is really incredibly difficult. And do you know why it's difficult? It's difficult because you think you won't get enough. That If I seek their happiness, I might end up with less. If I seek their good, I might end up with less. If I make sure they get everything they need, what about me? And we look at this, this dynamic here as like a bank account with a certain balance. And if I keep making withdrawals, Who's going to take care of me when it's at the bottom? And, and, and so we, we're measured in how we seek others. And we want to make sure that we get our tank full and that we're self-actualized and we're self-satisfied, and then we can minister to others. Folks, that comes from the world of Oprah. That doesn't come from the world of the Bible. The, the, you see that these two commands are linked together. Love the Lord your God, then love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you can't love your neighbor unless you've already fallen in love with God. And if you fall in love with God and you know that he is more than able to do abundantly beyond all that you can even ask or think, then even out of your empty tank you can minister. Why? Because he's the filler of all things. He has fully furnished us everything we need in Christ. I mean, how else do we understand the widow at the temple that gave her two 
little coins. She gave all that she had. Was she not being a good steward? You better take care of yourself. You better pull some back just to make sure you have enough. Is that what we would have said to her? Hey, be more deep, be more discreet, you know, be more incremental here. She is giving everything she has. Why? Because she knows God has everything she needs. So she can give freely. In fact, loving the neighbor is the expression of loving God. This is the visual expression. The greatest apologetic we have of God's love is when we love one another. When we don't divide ourselves up in camps, but we move with grace towards one another. We overcome our fears and our, our, you know, the kind of faults and foibles we have about drawing close to people that may be different than us or caring for them. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what, what, would, this, what would this look like? It, it would look like, I'm, I'm going to give you some suggestions, but I'm going to ask you to think through it. But in terms of this love being extended, it can be material, no doubt. That's part of it. James tells us about the foolishness to say to somebody that's hungry and cold, go be warm and well-fed, and does nothing about it. I mean, it's just goofy to say that. So there are material needs. I'm asking you to look in the concentric circles of your life. Who is there in your world that might need material aid? particularly around this season coming up, but not just this season. We all give in November, December, but all year long. What can God do through you to aid those people? How can love be expressed in material aid to people? What would it look like? It might, it might require you to sit down in your room quietly and to think through who are the people in my life that need what I have been given by God. How can I share that? How can I display that. Or not just material, how about loving our neighbor spiritually? So I mean, when you look at those people in your life, what have you done or how have you moved towards others with the desire that Christ be formed in them? Paul said to the church at Galatia, he says, I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. Paul had a vested interest in their spiritual development. And he, in fact, is at pains that Christ be formed in them. What pains do you have toward those who are not growing spiritually? I'd start with you men. Let's just start with your closest neighbor, your wife. Do you pray with your wife? Now, when I ask this question, oftentimes more than half of the men professing to be Christian don't pray with their wives. Well, I'm not sure it would work. Well, I don't feel... All kinds of reasons. I mean, loving your neighbor means grabbing your wife's hand, let me lift you before the throne of grace and ask God for mercy in your life that you would understand the death of a son in greater measure and that you would rest in the resurrection of the son in greater measure. Something along those lines. That you're caring for their spiritual... Ladies, the same thing. Singles, how you intersect with one another. Couples that are married with singles... Do we love one another spiritually? Are we actively, are we intentionally moving towards one another with the, with the desire that I want them to grow? I mean, we're all here together preparing for one another to see Christ so that the day would be a great day. It wouldn't be a day of shrinking back because I didn't take seriously all that he had told me. So, so think about loving your neighbor materially, loving your neighbor spiritually. 
Loving uh, your neighbor verbally. You know, it's interesting in Scripture, Paul in Galatians chapter 5, he actually speaks about loving your neighbor as a summing up of the law, and then he goes right into how we speak to one another as a form of love. Here's what he says in Galatians 5. He says, the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. So here Paul links loving neighbor with with words and speech. Do we speak in a way that builds up? Do we speak in a way that tears down? Do we fuel the frustration in our spouse by adding to the argument? I've been guilty of that time and time again. Do we speak in a way that builds up or calms down if it's a, if it's a hot situation? Are we looking to make peace? These are just some small ways. Where is your love for neighbor evidenced in your life? So, so you see, Jesus warns the skeptics, and then, of course, he calls for us to love God and love neighbor. And, and then last, he encourages us. So we're, perhaps if you're a non-Christian, there's kind of that warning. No, be investigative, but do it with humility. If you're a Christian here, You're called to love God and love your neighbor. And remember, when we talk about love for God, I forgot this and I just remembered it, a picture of loving God. So in Luke 7, you have uh, Jesus at dinner with a Pharisee. And they're having this dinner, and the Pharisee's looking at Jesus kind of at a distance, making sure he thinks he's a prophet, or at least assumes so. And of course, that's a scene where a prostitute comes in to Jesus' feet, because, you know, they're sitting Middle Eastern style with their feet tucked behind them at a lower table, not like ours. And she begins crying on his feet. Then she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Then she begins to kiss his feet. And then she anoints his feet. And, of course, the whole time the Pharisee, what's he watching? Pure act of devotion. What are you going to do when you see Jesus? Is it above you to kiss his feet? That is a pure act of devotion right there, people. I mean, that, that is right there. I, I, I would hope I could humble myself to just kiss his feet for all that he's done for us. And, of course, the Pharisee looks at her, sees Jesus and says, well, you must not be the prophet I thought you were. And so Jesus brings the parable and he says, hey, there's a money lender and he lends people money and one guy had a large debt. And, and one guy had a small debt, and the moneylender descends to forgive them both. You don't have to pay me back. Jesus says to the Pharisee, in this story, who would love the moneylender more? And, of course, the Pharisee got it right. He said, remember, Jesus always has those self-incriminating questions. And, and the, the moneylender, sorry, the uh, Pharisee says the one who would forgive him or the one who had the greater debt removed. And Jesus said to Simon, that's right. Her sins, which have been many, have been forgiven. He says, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. Love, love for God is seen as you understand the nature of the sins that have been forgiven. So this is a picture of devotion, the love that we should have for God. This gives birth to a love for neighbor. But now here's the fourth part. Let's say we're struggling right now. You're here, you're a Christian, you're convicted by loving God, loving your neighbor, and you don't know what to do. You say, I'm struggling in this. I really am having trouble loving my neighbor. 
Well, look at verse 40. I think you'll see the seriousness with which Jesus is saying we need to do this command. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, the whole redemptive plan of God is hanging on these two commandments. So you can do 50% of the bottom ones. If you don't do these, it's a problem. And so this kind of leaves us. I mean, who here can stand right now and say, I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and I love my neighbor just as I love myself? Who could stand here? I mean, none of us could. None of us. I'm standing, but I don't mean to be standing. I'm really sitting in my heart. The reality of it is, none of us could do it. And so what do we do with this? How do we handle something like this? Well, this is the glory of the Christian faith. Now, this is unique. It's unique from Judaism, from Islam, from everything else. We have Jesus. That's what's unique about our faith. And Jesus has come to love God with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul. And he has loved his neighbor as himself. Listen, when Jesus took on flesh and came and died, he was loving God fully. How so? Well, he was loving God by establishing his kingdom, inaugurating his kingdom, as Rick prayed. He inaugurated it, and he's bringing all things to be made new. Jesus has started the redemptive plan of God in a way that when it's consummated, all things will be made perfect. All things will bring glory to God. This is what Jesus has done as an expression of his love for God. But Jesus has loved us by bearing our sin and our shame and our guilt. He has loved us perfectly by dying for us. That we might. He died to save us. So when you look at Jesus Christ, he fulfilled this perfectly. And now the Christian, by faith, tethers himself to Christ. And this is how we're saved, through Christ. Not that we're going to be able to marry up and measure up and begin to finally fly at the height Jesus can fly at. No, he's the one that's flying. We're the passengers. We're, just, we're tethering ourselves to him by faith. That in Christ, this law has been fulfilled for us. But he's been making all things new, which includes us. So for the Christian here, we are called to walk in this. We are called to move in this. We're called to confess when we don't love. We're called to strive, not to earn God's favor, but as an overflow of love that we have for Christ. Now, you still may struggle. You may believe this and still struggle with this. And I want to take a little bit of the burden off you. You know, there is, um, we do have that period where our love vacillates and That is part and parcel of this life of the flesh. So I don't want you leaving here thinking, well, my love isn't exactly where it needs to be. That may be true, and you may need to confess that. But I do want you to understand, in this life of flesh, that there'll be times of topsy-turvy nature in life that we won't love God fully. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I did finish the biography, so the quotes probably will, will recede a little bit now. But he did bring up this point at the very end of his life. He was asked about, if you don't have love, if you're not always feeling love, then maybe you don't really know God. And he said, no, no, no. Uh, what he did was he quoted uh, to his interviewer, to the one who wrote the biography, Ian Murray, he quoted that song that we often sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He says this, the next line in the song In the hymn, he says, I dare not trust my sweetest frame, my disposition. They come and they go. We are a people that have dispositions that come and go. 
but I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand, although the ground is sinking sand. So it, it, it lets us know, no, we are called to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. But in those times when feelings ebb and flow, you're leaning on Jesus' name. You're not leaning on how well you're doing on the love meter. Remember, Jesus has come to make all things new. That's you. So when we talk about salvation, this remaking of ourselves, Jesus is the perfect human that we're aiming at. We're being made new. So through the Spirit of God, people, day by day, you're being changed into being fully human. And so this growing love for God and this growing love for neighbor should be what you expect as you're being renewed, as you're being changed. So that's what we're looking for. Not perfection, but incremental growth in our love for God and love for neighbor. That's a lot. He deals with skeptics in a way that invites humble inquiring of truth. He gives wisdom to us to love God and love neighbor. That is our chief obligation. But then he gives us Jesus, who has fulfilled that perfectly for us. So let's take a minute now, and perhaps you're going to be led quietly to a moment of, of confession over your lack of love. Maybe it's going to be Thanksgiving. You're just going to stop and say, thank you, Jesus, that you have loved the Father fully, and you've loved me fully. Thank you for that. And let your love swell that it moves you to walk in a manner worthy of his name. And then... Uh, Levy's going to close us in prayer, or an elder will close us in prayer.